0: Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello and welcome everybody. My name is Arwa Mahdawi. I'm a Guardian columnist and the author of Strong Female Lead. I'll be your chair for this event hosted by the RSA. I'm delighted to be joined today by Pragya Agarwal. Pragya is a behavior and data scientist and visiting professor of social inequalities and injustice at Loughborough University in the UK. She's the founder of a research think tank, The 50% Project, investigating women's status and rights around the world. Pragya is also the author of Motherhood, On the Choices of Being a Woman, and Sway, Unraveling Unconscious Bias. Her new book, lovely, Uh, Cover, beautiful book, Uh, Hysterical, Exploding the Myth of Gendered Emotions, has recently joined that list of publications and will be the subject of our conversation today. Welcome, Pragya.
1: Hi, Orva. Lovely to be here.
0: Um, So I've been really enjoying your book. Um, And, you know, it's interesting because, so your book is about, is is interrogating how emotional bias impacts all of us, analyzing what we can do about it and kind of setting out a sort of blueprint for how we can reclaim our emotions. And it's interesting because emotions are something that, you know, we talk about all the time, you know. You say, "Oh, I'm feeling happy. I'm feeling annoyed, etc." But we don't often really stand back and kind of think, "What what is an emotion? Like, what does it mean to say I'm happy? Where did where did this idea come from?" Um, and you start your book with a fascinating look at the history of, of emotions. Can you can you just start off by giving us a sort of abbreviated look at how emotions came to be um, and the, the sort of history behind something that we now just use without thinking about?
1: How long have we got? Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's why I
0: said abbreviated, because you do a very thorough job.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's, um, I'm. needless to say, there isn't really a consensus on what, how we define emotions, because it's something that has been ignored, even in scientific research for a very long time, because people thought it wasn't something that can be scientifically studied, or it wasn't important. And this was set out in very ancient times, um, when emotions were seen as emotions of passions, they were called something that people feel or something that was outside our control completely was set out as an op- opposite thing or a polarized thing to rationality or logic. So rationality or logic was related to the brain and passions were related to the body. So th- something that we, we couldn't overcome within our body and we could, had to respond with either bodily movements or facial expressions or something like that. And it was linked to our, um, scientifically speaking, it was linked to our hormones. But at that time, it was linked to parts of our body that were basically um, too, too unmanageable. So for instance, we know the title of the book hysterical that comes from hysterikos or his how. women's womb were the center of all the illnesses, and that was the one that controlled their emotions. Mm -hmm. So even in in scientific research, just in the 50 last 50 years actually people have started taking it more seriously the study of emotions and thinking about how emotions are formed in the brain, what is the impact of the emotions on our body, and how do we experience and express these emotions or these feelings. There's also been a cross-cultural study done in how, there has been a few cross-cultural studies done to show that actually the way we talk about emotions depends so much on our language, which which I discuss in the book as well. So if I don't have a word for sadness, does that mean that I'm not experiencing that emotion? That is also an interesting aspect of it. How much of it is rooted in the language that we have at our disposal. Mm
0: -hmm. And that language, of course, Hasn't been shaped by, you know, a democratic swath of society. You talk about in your book about much of the work on emotions today has been conducted from a male perspective, um, and 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 that's shaped how we how we look at emotions. Obviously, Are, can can you elaborate a bit more on that? The sort of the, the male biases that's that's uh, gone into the study of emotions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as we can imagine, a lot of the power that was in was in male hands was in hands of the men for a very long time, even now, uh, to a certain extent, but especially in the past, men were the ones who controlled uh, the writing, men were the the ones who were making the rules. And that was also grounded in this belief that women were too emotional, women were too passionate, they couldn't control this these overpowering of these emotions which meant they couldn't think logically or rationally um, which meant that they couldn't be trusted with the very important decisions that Mm -hmm. men could make because men were supposed to be more rational and logical there was also a divide made between emotions called sthenic and aesthetic emotions where some emotions were considered negative and where some emotions were considered positive so women if they experienced a emotion, a hot emotion like anger, their bodies were too fragile or too cold to be able to handle that kind of extent of emotion. And so they would fall apart and they were too fragile. For it. So there has been a bias in the way that it's been talked about. Obviously we know about hysterical that women's bodies were considered unmanageable, that women's womb was the center, as I said in the previous response, that women, because women, couldn't really manage these overpowering of emotions, it wasn't good for them because they it impacted their mental health, it impacted their physical health and lots of their physical illnesses were rooted in these emotional outbursts. And that is why it was stigmatized for so long women's bodies, but also mind and their emotions are stigmatized for so long. So mm-hmm. for a very long time, and that is why it's become so embedded in our society, that there were certain emotions that weren't at disposal of women and obviously there were certain like crying that weren't at the disposal of men because they were weaker emotions and men were to when were associated with more masculine emotions like courage and anger and all those kind of things mm-hmm. so there was this divide set up and men were the one controlling the writing and women were always at the bottom of the hierarchy there's also research to show that people were at the bottom of the hierarchy in any sort of hierarchy have less privilege to control or go outside the norms that have been set for them. So women mm-hmm. have less permission to go outside the social norms that were determined for them in terms of emotions.
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I'm based in the US and you know, at the moment with uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, et cetera. There's such a discussion about bodily autonomy. And what you're talking about is is what you describe as emotional autonomy. And I think often we don't really, talk about the two together, this idea that women often have to control their uh, emotions are not allowed to to, <laughs> to to be angry like in the way, you know, when Brett Kavanaugh was being confirmed and he had this righteous male anger. Well if a woman had had blown up in the Supreme Court like that, it would have been looked at very differently. Um and there was a lot of discussion at that time. I think perhaps you know we are about that, um, about those double standards, about the fact that men were allowed to be angry and women were not allowed to be angry. So, are, are the tides kind of shifting now, and we we are kind of starting to to explode this idea of like of, of emotional autonomy. We're starting to interrogate it more. Are you are you kind of um, are, are you glad to see more discussion about it in 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 the media, or do you think there's still a little, lot more to do?
1: I think, yes, we are moving with any kind of bias. I think in the last mm-hmm. couple of years, at least, or two, three years, we've had more discussions about how words and language shapes bias, how media can be biased too, how in everyday life and situations, we judge people according to our biases. But I do think that we haven't really had a lot of discussion about emotions and how even the judge and evaluate people's emotional responses based on what gender they are, what race they are, what their socioeconomic class is. We haven't really done that much investigation in it. And I do think that we still need to have more conversations and discussion about it because you're right. A man, anger is considered righteous because research, for instance, research has shown that when both men and women, when they saw a man angry they associated with their context that his context must have determined this anger. That is, he was having a bad day or there was something wrong with it. But if a woman shows anger, his her very valid opinions are invalidated often and also it's associated with her personality she's just an angry person so there's still a difference in how we perceive men and women, even when they express the same emotions. And because children are brought up with these norms, we are rooted in our culture and society. We learn to adapt our emotional responses, which means we might be feeling the same emotions. We might not choose to express them. For instance, on the other flip side, men, for a long time, we didn't see men crying or men were considered weaker if they cried because it was not a sign of masculinity. But it is, as I said, if if you're in the top of hierarchy, if you're you're a man, you have more permission to go outside these norms. So for instance, it was really interesting to note from research that when Bill Clinton on on his televised discussions around the time of Lewinsky debate or discourse, um, when he showed anger, he was trusted more by both men and women compared to when he was crying or he showed tears. So tears was shown and seen as a sign of like patheticness or that he wasn't trusted. But when, as you said, when um, he showed anger, it was considered more righteous and he was trusted more that he, he must be right. They must have had a bad day. That's why he's showing anger. So yes, I think there's still a lot more to be done in terms of how we talk about it and how we write about it in workplaces. Women in politics are still judged by their emotional responses. So I think that needs to be addressed and challenged. Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, every woman has, has, has walked that tightrope of trying, you know, not to, to seem angry, not to seem, you know, not to, to be too hysterical, um, and it, it, it adds a sort of um, emotional, like, burden to you, doesn't it? It's a, it's a lot of work trying to regulate your emotion. How, how does that sort of play, that emotional labour play out in women's personal lives and relationships?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot of uh, emotional regulation and emotional suppression takes a lot of cognitive load, first of all. So it, it puts a burden on our cognitive resources, which means a lot of our mental ability is going into suppressing or regulating those emotions. We are constantly judging, or women are constantly judging their environment and seeing what kind of response would be acceptable at this stage, how should I do it? So they might experience a certain emotion, but they have to put a barrier between experiencing it and expressing that emotion. And then they also have to worry about the fallback from the emotion or any kind of backlash if they happen to have an outburst or happen to show their true or authentic emotions in a context where the norm was not that, that was acceptable. So first of all, there is a mental health impact on it. So we know that, depression and anxiety um, is on the rise or women experience it much more. There's stats and data in the book about it. Um, But any kind of emotional suppression carries a mental health penalty. So We see in men, we know that the toxic masculinity has a mental health impact as well. Psychological research has shown that. But in women in particular, because it happens on an everyday basis, most of the time, like you're asked to smile or you're asked to smile to create comfort for other people because that is, considered a feminine attribute to create comfort for other people that creates a lot of mental health impact. Um, emotional labor is a form of labor that you have to do to create comfort, as I say, comfort for other people, to modulate your emotions so that other people don't feel uncomfortable, but also so that they feel they, they you have to protect their well-being. So in families or in workplaces, women have to do more of this job to provide a sort of an emotional blanket for other people. And that has a cognitive impact as well that is a mental health impact as well that and that kind of carries on into into physical well being as well because obviously mental and physical health are interlinked. So uh, I think in, in, in family situations in social situations in workplace situations, women have to constantly walk this thin line where they have to constantly monitor what's happening, what is the threshold of emotionality in a particular workplace or in a particular social context. They have to constantly um, on the run, basically, uh, modulate their emotions, but they also have to make sure they're appeasing and comforting everybody else at the cost of their own emotional well being. And that is the emotional labor and that is, as I said, has a huge mental health impact on women. Mm -hmm.
0: And talking about family situations, um, the gendering of our emotions starts in early childhood. And um, how did how early do children learn these gendered cues and norms around their emotions?
1: I think as, as soon as a child is born, they're placed in this kind of a social framework or a cultural framework where all the implicit cues not if, not explicitly but often implicit cues are are telling them how to be how to be a person that would fit into the society, how to appease others, how to comfort others, how to work around with others. Um, If you see children's clothes and toys, they're also very gendered. Mm -hmm. So a a girl's clothes are often got like soft, fluffy things on them, giving them a kind of a message that they are softer or more fragile, while boys would have tractors or dinosaurs or dirt tracks, which is giving them a message and also the parents and carers a message that boys are sturdier and hardier and allowed to take more risks. Um, girls clothes are often flimsier, their shoes have thin soled, they're not designed to climb trees, boys are allowed to do that. So that is also linked to how parents and carers react to girls and boys and there's research to show that even in the most gender equitable household, parents have different responses to girls and boys and the words they use so they would use more softer words with girls and prevent them from taking risk or ask them to be more careful than when they talk to boys and I'm, I'm saying that of course things are changing but I don't think it's changing everywhere because this message exists like a smog around us we're constantly in this me- in message or norms around us absorbing it mm-hmm. and as, as children grow older they Due to developmental psychology theories, they they are they are trying to conform to their membership groups. So if they identify with being a girl or a boy, they would try and see and observe what do other girls do, what is a girl expected to be like, what are other boys expected to be like, and it becomes so polarized that they start absorbing these behaviors, into conforming to these membership groups because everybody wants a sense of belonging. All children want that. And so that is, also, that is called social conditioning because they're being conditioned into certain behaviors. And we start believing that it is innate while those behaviors might not be innate uh, at all. Mm-hmm. So it starts from a very young age. And we see that by the time the child is nine or 10 years old, some of these behaviors become very deeply rooted or some of these biases towards their own group, but also the other groups can become quite deeply rooted as well.
0: Mm. And you're a mother of a, a daughter, right? How do you kind of get beyond that smog of social conditioning? Do you do anything particular to try and uh, to try and ensure that your daughter is 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 not kind of molded into the, into those emotions?
1: Yeah, I have three daughters, and I have daughters. <laughs> I have two small children, and it's been really interesting. Um, to, for me to personally, first of all, reflect on my own biases, because I think we have grown up in a certain way. So if once you grow up, the books you read, the books, we, we absorb these messages as well. So I had to really reflect on the fact that is there anything I'm doing to differentiate um, between people or, the, or to treat them differently because they're girls first of all, so I need to be very careful. Then I want to make sure that they're wearing as much as gender neutral clothes, trying to um, buy clothes and colors that are not stereotypically masculine or feminine to set these divides. Um, I also try and look at books and see that they're not getting the message that boys are always there to rescue and help girls because they're more fragile and girls are doing as much as possible going outside. It, it is quite, a, it is again a form of a labor really because I have to constantly challenge things they see on screen because they see how much it is gendered even mm-hmm. Peppa Pig or even cartoon starting from a very young age, they're very gendered. Um, so you have to constantly challenge those words with them and constantly tell them, you know, that it's not like this, you know, that, trying to prevent stereotypes from being forming even simple stereotypes like boys have short hair and girls have long hair. I think once people start stereotyping, it's very easy to fall back into gendered norms and gendered behavior. So we're constantly doing that and constantly working every day to challenge these things that they hear from outside from other people or from schools. And, um, and you realize that some of the books are Are quite gendered even when they're not supposed to be you realize that these roles are so set in in society you realize that um, when you go around and if you have a girl people would react to a girl throwing a tantrum in a supermarket in a very different way to a boy throwing a tantrum so you have to be able to stand up to it you realize that even at the age of five or six they expect people expect girls to smile more than boys and so you have to challenge that and make them sure that they understand that it's not their duty to smile for anybody else's comfort. So I'm constantly trying to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I do wonder though, there is, I feel like a lot of um, language around female leadership over the last few years has been telling women, don't smile so much, don't say sorry, act a bit more like a man. And yeah, at the same time, it seems like we're not really telling men to do the same thing. Um, you know, because there's I, th- I think it's the way that women are socially conditioned in some ways is is good that we t- women are told to be are told to be nice, to be, we're told not to are told to be people pleasers. So it would be nice if men were <laughs> conditioned a little bit more that way as well. I mean, do you think that the conversation is kind of more focused on like telling women how to change their behavior versus telling men how to adapt. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I completely agree with you, Arva. And I think that is a problem because we are, and that's, I think, the whole self-help culture comes from Mm -hmm. as well, that we are trying women to tell women to improve themselves and to fit into these societies, how to modulate their behavior. And my issue with smiling is not that, be, nobody should be asked to smile but nobody should be forced to smile people should be make, able to make that choice it shouldn't be seen as a feminine attribute to smile or a responsibility and yes i don't think we're talking to boys that much about emotional regulations we're not talking about how we raise boys to be more empathetic how do we raise boys to be kinder how do we raise boys to to be able to express the emotions they want to as well because yes i think these these biases or these polarized norms disadvantage men as much as well sometimes because then some men are forced to conform to these behavior to show that they are a man or to conform to masculinity as well. But also, I think, yes, in leadership debates, a lot of discourse happened is because again because the masculine and feminine attributes were so um, polarized or divided or so set up in our society that leader uh, being a leader was very much closely associated with being a man. So the masculine attributes like being tough or assertive or straight talking were very much associated with being a leader so to be a good leader, women had to conform to those masculine attributes because in a workplace or in politics, women are penalized because they're not seen as as assertive, implicitly or explicitly sometimes. But then women also have to walk this really thin line, tricky line where they have to conform to the masculine attributes to show, I can do what a man can do. um, And also conform to the feminine attributes to be likable, agreeable, and warm and nurturing because they're penalized for being bitchy or bossy, if they go outside these norms as well, so we don't expect this of men. They, they, we're not expecting any kind of um, because they are the norm because they are the they are the normative uh, model for a leader, really. So we're not expecting anything from them. Then penalize that less if they transgress any of these emotions. If men as leaders cry, we've seen that as a really positive quality. So even if they transgress some of these norms. So, um, yes, I think the disc, and I also don't agree that the whole discourse around a female model of leadership or a feminine model of leadership, I don't agree with that language either, because I don't think there's a feminine model of leadership or a masculine form model of leadership. I think there is a there is a good leadership, which should be empathetic, kind, all those things. And we have to attempt and challenge these kind of really archaic tropes that have set in that a leader has to be assertive or a leader has to be bossy a leader had to be some all those kind of ideas that we have got set in we have to break outside this to see how does other kinds of emotions play a role in this model of lead good leadership no
0: well I think the issue with words like feminine model and masculine model is that obviously it's not a binary is it men can be empathetic women can be assertive however they are shorthand for the the characteristics that that we've been socially conditioned to have um, so uh, we have been talking a lot about social conditioning. What about biology? Is there any sort of biological basis, any sort of difference in hardwiring between men and women? Uh, I, I like the, the thing in your book, when you talk about being hangry, that there is actually a biological basis to being hangry. And it's not just something that, that people made up, but when you're hungry, it it, it, uh, it, it aggravates the anger. <laughs> and then there's a biological basis to that. So I'll... Um, oh, is there any truth to men and women being so sort of biologically, how do I differently?
1: I think a lot of our emotions are biological because we the, the our level of hormones, um, um, the way that those function together, our brain, um, brain networks, the network, everything determine how we process emotions or how we respond to emotion um, situations. For instance, when you go into perimenopause or menopause people start feeling very angry women and if they feel more angry than before and that could be linked to social kind of try social issues saying actually i'm not going to take any shit anymore because i'm older and i can't really be bothered or it's also linked to hormones saying this hormone neural imbalance is playing a havoc with my neurobiology and so i'm feeling more angry so they're both Context to it, yes. So there is a there is a hormonal aspect. We know that the level of testosterone determines certain emotional um, um, outburst or certain emotional expressions. But we have to think about: Is there a difference? between the group of men. So some men might be processing emotions differently than other men, and some women might be processing or experiencing emotions differently to other women. It is not, we are so focused on looking at between groups that we don't look at differences within the groups. And we try and, because it's lazier and easier to do that, and it's been set out like that, and a lot of scientific bias is also that what gets funded and what gets published, we are very, we have been very much focused into the idea that men and women are very different creatures. Yes, there is a lot of difference in the way we born and male and female biology is different. But our behaviors to a certain extent are socially determined. So yes, there might be some innate, innate sense in how we express emotions and experience emotions. No, how we experience emotions. Expression of emotions is very much a socially conditioned thing. But I don't think that men and women brains are different. There's a lot of research in neuroscience that has already shown that, which means that men and women are not experiencing emotions differently; they are, though, expressing emotions differently, and they're being judged for their emotional expressions differently. And that is very much a social and cultural issue.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
0: and and so, so talking about like cultural determinants of or like how we experience emotion. Obviously, we've been going through a pandemic for a couple of years, and that has that changed how, you know, which has been a, a a sort of a really massive emotion, collective emotional experience. Has that changed how people are allowed to express emotion? Has it allowed men to sort of, to cry more on screen? I, I remember Matt Hancock crying on, <laughs> when it was talking about the vaccines being developed, something that perhaps wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. Um, Has the pandemic kind of affected how we are allowed to feel and express how we feel?
1: That's a really interesting question, actually. Um, I think that during the pandemic and lockdown, we had more permission to show all kinds of emotions. We were breaking outside the norms because it almost seemed like the normal laws of society didn't apply to how we were working. So there was more anger from women, even mothers who are not traditionally allowed or supposed to show anger or frustration, but talking about it more at least on social media, because that's how we were communicating or we were talking more about the range of emotions that we were experiencing as people about grief about anger around black lives matter about in- injustice all those kind of things were coming to the forefront we were talking about it there was there was all the sense of this collective kind of community based emotionality where we could as a community were experiencing similar emotions, so there was more leverage to these emotions, there was more permission to show these emotions. I do worry though that as we've gone back to the kind of the the, how things were before there's been a push towards it are we losing some of that permissibility, are we losing that sense of community and collectiveness around the idea that it's okay to transgress some of those emotional norms. Um, I'm yet to look into it, but I do just looking at some of the way that I've looked at media headlines or uh, recently we had the Amber Heard Johnny Depp case. Uh, All those kinds of things have shown that actually we haven't really gone much beyond the, these emotional norms that have been set in society. And yes, women are talking more about showing anger, that anger, there's been some books about anger is okay. But still, every day we see women being told off or penalized or called an angry, bossy person or whatever if they express their opinions or stand up and it's obviously, there's an intersectional element to it. So Mm -hmm. some women have more permission than other women, uh, depending on your socioeconomic class, race, sexuality, all those kind of things. So um, I do think that we had a really like an interesting moment in time where things seem quite different and we thought those changes would become concrete and that it would change society, but it might not have happened. It's yet to be seen.
0: Yeah, there was at the beginning of the pandemic. It felt like perhaps the world would change for the better, and <laughs> unfortunately, it hasn't. <laughs> we thought maybe okay. it was. Yeah. Oh dear. Well, um, what about the internet as well? I mean, being a woman on the internet, I'm sure you're used to being the at the end of a lot of, of angry men yelling at you, and the internet has given a voice to a lot of people to, to kind of unleash their emotions, to not have any kind of social constraints about the, around their emotions because of anonymity. Um, is, is that dangerous as well to kind of completely uh, un- be allowed to unleash your emotions with, with no consequences? <laughs>
1: But as you say, that some people have more permission still to unleash their emotions than others. um, I, I, There's been a little few research projects in this, and there's been some research to show that actually even on email or even on social media, uh, women are supposed to show their emotionality in a certain way, um, where they have to re- be more restrained. And so that is why um their their conversations or communication is still monitored and there's this say people women are using too many exclamation marks or too many emojis and it's linked to the idea that women are more exuberant and that women are more emotional and that women are showing too much passion and it's just undignified ind- and it's not really professional and all that sort of thing so it is still kind of that that's it's being monitored in that way. And women are being told, if you write a professional email, don't use exclamation marks because it doesn't look professional. I, I, I do think that yes, social media has a, has, has, it has a lot of problems in the way that um, it it has, is good things because it democratizes this kind of notion of who's got a voice and who hasn't got a voice and it's given voice to so many. But it's still um, there's a power imbalance that exists in society that translates to social media as well. I do feel that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm a big abuser of exclamation exclamation marks. And every time I look at an email, I'm like, oh, <laughs> delete, delete, delete. <laughs> but I do, I do love an exclamation mark. And I think it's, it's a Me too. <laughs> <laughs> and- you write in the book that whatever your gender this book might make you angry it made me angry writing it uh what kind of made you the most angry writing it like what did did you learn anything new that kind of riled you up or 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 what what really struck you writing the book
1: Um, i think just reading a lot of historical research and reading how women have been disadvantaged for a very long time, the way the language has been used. Um, if you read about witch burning, and that was also linked to how some women were transgressing these kind of emotional norms and social norms. If you read about hysteria, if you read about how um, people have been, women have been talked about in some of the literature or, uh, and how they've been, they caught chamber pots or all those kinds of things. You just feel really this sense of rage that it's been a long struggle to men- to achieve equality that we are still talking about it. And then, and then I suppose it made me angry that we've come so far, that we've tried to achieve some sense of equality, um, address this injustice, but it seems like we are going back, regressing in the last few years, couple of years at least, where women's rights are constantly being taken away, their autonomy is being minimized and diminished. And uh, it just made me, quite angry as to how this has happened, how this power imbalance still exists in a society that we fail to acknowledge. And it made me sad as well, as I said in the book, it made me sad at times, but writing these things is I I suppose I wanted to write from a place of anger and sadness and all the emotions that I was feeling because even though as a scientist you're taught not to show any time your emotions and to be completely objective, I don't think I can dissociate my emotions from the material that I read and write and talk about because a lot of it is personal, a lot of it is political, a lot of it is related to my own own body and emotions, a lot of it is related to how my children will grow up and face the same Uh, Injustices or inequalities, Um, a lot of it's linked to other women that I don't know um, but but feel very strongly about that they shouldn't be disadvantaged in this way. And the fact is that it made me angry that we still fail to acknowledge that our words and language shape so much of our inequalities, that we are still not mindful of the words we are using. We are not mindful of the impact it has on some people or in the minority communities, the marginalized. I feel like some people are gaining more and more power while the people who are marginalized are still are being pushed to the fringes all the time and their rights being taken away. So yes, there was a lot of anger reading those things, writing about it. But I try to achieve some kind of balance in thinking, I need to look at research studies and I need to provide evidence for things that I'm writing about um, because it's not just driven by my anger towards Mm. these issues. So you
0: brought up race and marginalized people um, and we we did touch on intersectionality a little bit earlier, but could you just unpick a little bit more how other forms of social inequality, particularly race, are influenced by society's gendered view of emotions?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I think intersectionality is really important whenever we talk about any kind of bias or inequality, because people are not homogenized groups. So even when we talk about men and women, within those groups, there are hierarchies. So some men, women have more privilege and power than other women. And we need to think about that because we are all formed of different identities. So I'm a brown woman, but I have other forms of identities as well, um, like my sexuality or whether I'm cisgendered or whether I'm educated or not, whether what my socioeconomic class is, all those kinds of things can either give me privilege, but also can some identities can be a cause for oppression or bias or discrimination. So when we look at the gendering of emotions, we see that within um, within, as for instance, if we take anger, um, within women black women are often labeled very aggressive. There's an angry black woman trope. So they don't, they have even less permission to show anger and they're very quickly assumed to be aggressive because that's the kind of stereotypes that's set in our society. And Asian women, for instance, are assumed to be more passive and submissive and subversive. And so they are, they are expected to be all those things. So anytime uh, Asian, East Asian, South Asian woman raises their voice or, or speaks, on a platform or expresses an opinion, they can be penalized for it because it's breaking an expectation, breaking a norm because it's not assumed to be the norm or the normative thing. So um, I think we need to talk about um, intersectionality within these groups as well, um, about how uh, men within, within men, for instance, I- historically, we saw that um, men of upper classes were, were ex- allowed to express lots of emotions, lots a range of emotions, but men from minority ethnic communities were considered um, to be similar to women in the way that they were very passionate and they were very fiery. And those emotions were not considered permissible and that kind of characteristic or personality were considered inferior to others. So that kind of class and yeah. also the my ethnicity also determined who was allowed to express what range of emotions.
0: Yeah, uh, class is interesting, isn't it? Because I, I think yeah, if you're termed eccentric, it normally means you've got your upper class, right? Only uh, you, some people are eccentric and some people are, are mad. <laughs> That's are sort of yeah. really long socioeconomic lines. Um, So, we've been talking a lot about anger, let's kind of finish things up by talking about hope, Mm. you know, how do we move towards more kind of equitable view of emotions and feminist landscape of of emotions you talk about, how do we, as individuals, how do we unpick our own subtle expectations, assumptions, biases, and and correct our own biases in the short term?
1: I don't think there's a quick fix to yeah. it. I, I don't think we can just say that this is going to happen overnight. But I do think that the more we think about it, and the more if we acknowledge that we have these biases that we might have these biases that if we reflect on the words and language we use, um, in terms of describing a woman, am I calling a woman more angry or crazy or hysterical, if they dare to show any strong emotions? Am I expecting a woman to Modulate the emotions more. Am I expecting? Am I more? Am I more kind of? I don't. I don't know. Okay with men exp- expressing uh, strong emotions or shouting or screaming because he's a man and men are just like that. Am I doing this? Am I com- using language which? which which disadvantages or which kind of um, discriminate against women of minority ethnic or a black woman or a brown woman because they are not fitting into my expectations of how they should be. If I'm doing all this, then yes, I am biased and I have all these biases built into me. I suppose the first thing is the acknowledgement of that. And the second thing is I think to to really constantly reflect on these words and language that we use. Am I doing it in my home? Am I doing it in my workplace? Whereas in the workplace, for instance, we can as as an organization look at any policies that are disadvantaging people because of the way they express their emotions. I've seen in certain organizations that I've worked with, they they have very strict codes around how people are supposed to talk or what what emotion they're supposed to show. So that kind of thresholds that are set in different workplaces, I think it's a responsibility of the managers or the leaders to kind of reflect on that. And if that is conforming to certain kind of colonial idea of what uh, emotions are acceptable, and if it is disadvantaging certain people, Mm -hmm. Um, I suppose, a feminist landscape would, uh, would be one where we are not trying to be a man. Or we're not trying to be equal to man, but everybody is equal, no matter if they're a man or a woman, and that is some way to go. Um, but I do, I do think that we have to break up these ideas in business school and in business magazine to teach women how to succeed, how to negotiate, how to talk like a man, how to be a good leader by conforming to some certain kind of traditional masculine attributes that we think are a def- definition of a good leader. Um, and as as we talked about earlier, I do think that men have to be taught this from a young age about uh, how do we reclaim all our emotions? Everybody as a person, as a human being, because we are humans, because we feel, how do we reclaim all our emotions and be allowed to express them freely and openly, no matter what our genders are or what our identities are. Um, and I think it's a responsibility, a collective responsibility as a society to re-examine these norms that we have set within uh, the way our words and language and media, everything works, but also as individuals within our own lives as well.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting when it, with words, sometimes people get a little bit defensive when you use words like bias because they think you're accusing them of being sexist or homophobic. But it is so important, as you say, that we all recognize that we all have biases. We've all been socially conditioned to think certain things. So it, is, it, is, it, it really starts with that acknowledgement.
1: Yeah, I think biases are, I mean, biases are just cognitive shortcuts, Mm -hmm. biases are not always negative, I'm biased towards a certain kind of ice cream flavor, I'm biased towards certain kind of magazine or certain kind of, but some biases are not leading to prejudice and discrimination, but these cognitive shortcuts can lead to discrimination because we have formed certain templates in our brain that we need to function. So bias is not always a negative thing, but some biases against certain groups of people because we are not individuating them, we are considering them as part of a group. If we say all women are hysterical, then that is a bias because we are stereotyping women rather Mm. than saying, I'm going to look at each woman differently and just assess them on a case by case basis. Or we say all men should not cry or all men are more angry than women. Those are stereotypical um, statements that are rooted in biases. So yes, some biases are, negative but yes we all carry biases because we need these shortcuts to function in life
0: mm-hmm. and speaking of shortcuts is there just a sort of one line of of what you'd want people to take away from your book
1: <laughs> i think <laughs> that's really tough but i i do think that if we need to um address the kind of cultural norms um mm-hmm. that these emotional uh norms the, that we are conforming to and And just say that actually we've, for so long, we've thought about, I think therefore I am, but I would like to people to say, I feel therefore I am.
0: Thank you so much. It's been so wonderful to speak with you Pragya. but I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Um, So thank you so much. And thank you to everyone who's tuned in to watch. Uh, If you'd like to learn more about everything we've discussed, Pragya's new book is out now, Order from Foils using the code RSA20 for a special discount. And if you'd like to see more from Pragya, you can also watch another event with Laura Bates from earlier this summer. Uh, Thank you so much to the RSA for hosting this event. To learn more about the work of the RSA and how to get involved in their global fellowship community, you can visit the RSA.org. Thank you all so much for watching and see you next time. Bye.
1: Thank you so much, everyone.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.